Hi, I'm Michael G. Williams, and welcome to Social Distancing Radio. I'm a novelist, and a reader and friend asked if I would read from my work as something they might find comforting and familiar amidst the uncertainty and anxiety we're experiencing from multiple sources in 2020. As of this opening, I've read Perishables, the first book of my five-book vampire and urban fantasy series, The Withrow Chronicles, published by Falstaff Books, aka falstaffbooks.com. If you'd like to pick up a copy for yourself, head over to bit.ly, that's bit.ly, slash perishables link. Now I'm reading from my short stories and other works, and occasionally I'll invite on a writer friend for special episodes called Public Domain Radio. Thanks for listening. Alrighty. Well, the winter holidays of 2020 are completed, and now it is January of 2021. And it feels like it is time for us to resume Dracula. So let's do that. Thanks for allowing me the break. The blah, 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 blah. Thanks for allowing me the extended break and the ability to focus on some other writing work for a little bit. And now let's read us some Dracula. Um, we are now up to the point in the book when everybody starts to realize how much danger they're in. I feel like. We're not quite to the point of everybody realizing how much danger they're in, but clearly they are in danger because there has been something very successfully done to them that is very bad. And a lot of people who previously in this book were kind of like, eh, about the danger, now don't really have room to be like that anymore. And you know, I'm going to be very frank. It feels awfully familiar to think about things like that, especially, you know, uh, just uh, less than a week after the attempted insurrection of January 6th in Washington, D.C. So, hmm, Dracula, relevant after all these years. Anyway, let's move on. I'm going to actually back up a little bit before the part where I ended last because it's been a while and I don't want to jump in in the middle of a scene. So anyway, Oh, gosh, look at me forgetting. First up, I'm going to have a sip of that Reedon Cider this time, not wine. Uh, I would say what brand or variety of cider it is, but it's homebrew hard cider. One of the many hobbies that everybody has, you know, everybody has been trying to pick up hobbies. And uh, one of the hobbies that I picked up in the course of the pandemic is homebrewing. So this is from my very first gallon of homebrewed hard cider. Uh, if you happen to be into fermenting and are curious, then here is the short version. I started with apple juice, brown sugar, and seasonings. I fermented it all the way out to dry. And so according to the hydrometer, it is about as strong as wine. But it tastes so good with just a little Splenda added to the bottle. Mm, so good. Anyway, uh, I'm going to have a sip of that right now. Mm. Oh, it's good stuff. Gosh, I like this. I bottled it about, I don't know, a month ago. After letting it ferment for three or four weeks. And um, it's just been so good. 
and it just keeps getting better. Oh my gosh. Oh yeah. Okay, I have to stop and make myself read or I'll just drink it until I've drained the whole thing. So, Dracula. We're in the middle of chapter 13. Whose diary are we reading? Okay, Dr. Seward's diary. Actually, I'm just going to start at the beginning of chapter 13. Chapter 13, Dr. Seward's diary continued. The funeral was arranged for the next succeeding day so that Lucy and her mother might be buried together. I attended to all the ghastly formalities, and the urbane undertaker proved that his staff were afflicted, were blessed, with something of his own obsequious suavity. Even the woman who performed the last offices for the dead remarked to me in a confidential brother-professional way when she had come out from the death chamber. She makes a very beautiful corpse, sir, and it's quite a privilege to attend on her. It's not too much to say that she will do credit to our establishment. I noticed the Van Helsing never kept far away. This was possible from the disordered state of things in the household. There were no relatives at hand, and as Arthur had to be back the next day to attend at his father's funeral, we were unable to notify anyone who should have been bidden. Under the circumstances, Van Helsing and I took it upon ourselves to examine papers, etc. He insisted upon looking over Lucy's papers himself. I asked him why, for I feared that he, being a foreigner, might not be quite aware of, Eng of English legal requirements, and so might in ignorance make some unnecessary trouble. He answered me, I know, I know, you forget that I am a lawyer as well as a doctor, but this is not altogether for the law. You knew that when you, avo when you avoided the coroner. I have more than him to avoid. There may be papers more, such as this. As he spoke, he took from his pocketbook the memorandum which had been in Lucy's breast and which she had torn in her sleep. When you find anything of the solicitor who is for the late Mrs. Westenra, seal all her papers and write to him tonight. For me, I watch here in the room and in Miss Lucy's old room all night, and I myself search for what may be. It is not well that her very thoughts go into the hands of strangers. I went on with my part of the work, and in another half hour had found the name and address of Mrs. Westenra's solicitor and had written to him. All the poor lady's papers were in order, explicit directions regarding the place of burial were given. I had hardly sealed the letter when, to my surprise, Van Helsing walked into the room, saying, "'Can I help you, friend John? I am free, and if I may, my service is to you.' "'Have you got what you looked for?' I asked, to which he replied, I did not look for any specific thing. I only hoped to find, and find I have, all that there was. Only some letters and a few memoranda, and a diary new begun. But I have them here, and we shall for the present say nothing of them. I shall see that poor lad tomorrow evening, and with his sanction I shall use some. When we had finished the work in hand, he said to me, And now, friend John, I think we made to bed. We want sleep, both you and I, and rest to recuperate. Tomorrow we shall have much to do, but for the tonight there is no need of us, alas. Before turning in, we went to look at poor Lucy. The undertaker had certainly done his work well, for the room was turned into a small chapelle ardente. There was a wilderness of beautiful white flowers, and death was made as little repulsive as might be. The end of the winding sheet was laid over the face. When the professor bent over and turned it gently back, we both started at the beauty before us the tall wax candles showing a sufficient light to note it well. All Lucy's loveliness had come back to her in death, 
and the hours that had passed, instead of leaving traces of decay's effacing fingers, had but restored the beauty of life, till positively I could not believe my eyes that I was looking at a corpse. The professor looked sternly grave. He had not loved her as I had, and there was no need for tears in his eyes. He said to me, Retain, remain till I return, and left the room. He came back with a handful of wild garlic from the box waiting in the hall, but which had not been opened, and placed the flowers amongst the others on and around the bed. And he took from his neck inside his collar a little gold crucifix and placed it over the mouth. He restored the sheet to its place, and we came away. I was undressing in my own room when, with a premonitory tap at the door, he entered and at once began to speak. Tomorrow I want you to bring me, before night, a set of post-mortem knives. Must we make an autopsy? I asked. Yes and no. I want to operate, but not as you think. Let me tell you now, but not a word to another. I want to cut off her head and take, her, take out her heart. Ah, you, a surgeon, and so shocked. You, whom I have seen, with no tremble of hand or heart, do operations of life and death that make the rest shudder. Oh, but I must not forget, my dear friend John, that you loved her, and I have not forgotten it, for it is I that shall operate, and you must only help. I would like to do it tonight, but for Arthur I must not. He will be free after his father's funeral tomorrow, and he will want to see her, to see it. Then when she is coffined ready for the next day, you and I shall come when all asleep. We shall unscrew the coffin lid and shall do our operation, and then replace all so that none know save we alone. But why do it at all? The girl is dead. Why mutilate her poor body without need? And if there is no necessity for a post-mortem and nothing to gain by it, no good to her, to us, to science, to human knowledge, why do it? Without such, it is monstrous. For answer, he put his hand on my shoulder and said with infinite tenderness, Friend John, I pity your poor bleeding heart, and I love you the more because it does so bleed. If I could, I would take on myself the burden that you do bear. But there are things you, that you know not but that you shall know, and bless me for knowing, though they are not pleasant things, John, my child. You have been my friend now many years, and yet did you ever know me to do any without good cause? I may err, I am but man, but I believe in all I do. Was it not for these causes that you send for me when the great trouble came? Yes. Were you not amazed, nay horrified, when I would not let Arthur kiss his love, though she was dying, and snatched him away by all my strength? Yes. And yet you saw how she thanked me, with her so beautiful dying eyes, her voice too so weak, and she kissed my rough old hand and blessed me? Yes. And did you not hear me swear promise to her, that so she closed her eyes grateful? Yes. Well, I have good reason now for all I want to do. You have for many years, trust me, you have believed me weeks past, when there be things so strange that you might be that you might have well doubt. Believe me yet a little, friend John. If you trust me not, then I must tell you what I think, and that is not perhaps well. And if I work, as work I shall, no matter trust or no trust, without my friend trust in me, I work with heavy heart, and feel, oh, so lonely, when I want all help and courage that may be. He paused a moment and went on solemnly. Friend John, there are strange and terrible days before us. Let us not be two, but one, that so we work to a good end. Will you not have faith in me? I took his hand and promised him, 
I held my door open as he went away and watched him go into his room and close the door. As I stood without moving, I saw one of the maids pass silently along the passage. She had her back towards me, so did not see me, and go into the room where Lucy lay. The sight touched me. Devotion is so rare, and we are so grateful to those who show it unasked to those we love. Here was a poor girl putting aside the terrors which she naturally had of death to go watch alone by the bier of the mistress whom she loved, so that the poor clay might not be lonely till laid to eternal rest. I must have slept long and soundly, for it was broad daylight when Van Helsing waked me by coming into my room. He came over to my bedside and said, You need not trouble about the knives, or we shall not do it. Why not? I asked, for his solemnity of the night before had greatly impressed me. Because, he said sternly, it is too late, or too early. See? Here he held up the little golden crucifix. This was stolen in the night. How stolen? I asked in wonder, since you have it now. Because I get it back from the worthless wretch who stole it, from the woman who robbed the dead and the living. Her punishment will surely come, but not through me. She knew not altogether what she did, and thus unknowing she only stole. Now we must wait. He went away on the word, leaving me with a new mystery to think of, a new puzzle to grapple with. The forenoon was a dreary time, but at noon the solicitor came. Mr. Marquand of Holman, Sons, Marquand, and Litterdale. He was very genial and very appreciative of what we had done, and took off our hands all cares as to details. During lunch, he told us the Mrs. Westenra had for some time expected sudden death from her heart, and had put her affairs in absolute order. He informed us that, with the exception of a certain entailed property of Lucy's father's, which now, in default of direct issue, went back to a distant branch of the family, the whole estate, real and personal, was left absolutely to Arthur Holmwood. When he had told us so much, he went on, Frankly, we did our best to prevent such a testamentary disposition, and pointed out certain contingencies that might leave her daughter either penniless or not so free as she should be to act regarding her matrimonial alliance. Indeed, we pressed the matter so far that we almost came into collision, for she asked us if we were or were not prepared to carry out her wishes. Of course, we had then no alternative but to accept. We were right in principle, and ninety-nine times out of a hundred we should have proved, by the logic of events, the accuracy of our judgment. Frankly, however, I must admit that in this case any other form of disposition would have rendered impossible the carrying out of her wishes. For by her predeceasing her daughter, the latter would have come into possession of the property. And even had she only survived her mother by five minutes, her property would, in case there were no will, and a will was practical impossibility in such a case, have been treated at her decease as under intestacy. In which case Lord Godalming, though so dear a friend, would have had no claim in the world, and the inheritors, being remote, would not be likely to abandon their just rights for sentimental reasons regarding an entire stranger. I assure you, my dear sirs, I am rejoiced at the result, perfectly rejoiced. He was a good fellow, but his rejoicing at the one little part in which he was officially interested of so great a tragedy was an object lesson in the limitations of sympathetic understanding. He did not remain long, but said he would look in later in the day and see Lord Godalming. His coming, however, had been a certain comfort to us, since it assured us that we should not have to dread hostile criticism as to any of our acts. Arthur was expected at five o'clock, so a little before that time we visited the death chamber. It was so in very truth, for now both mother and daughter lay in it. The undertaker, true to his craft, had made the best display he could of his goods. 
and there was a mortuary air about the place that lowered our spirits at once. Van Helsing ordered the former arrangement to be adhered to, explaining that, as Lord Godalming was coming very soon, it would be less harrowing to his feelings to see all that was left of his fiancée quite alone. The undertaker seemed shocked at his own stupidity and exerted himself to restore things to the condition in which we left them the night before, so that when Arthur came, such shocks to his feelings as we could avoid were saved. Poor fellow. He looked desperately sad and broken. Even his stalwart manhood seemed to have shrunk somewhat under the strain of his much-tried emotions. He had, I knew, been very genuinely and devotedly attached to his father, and to lose him and at such a time was a bitter blow to him. With me he was warm as ever, and to Van Helsing he was sweetly courteous, but I could not help seeing that there was some constraint with him. The professor noticed it too and motioned me to bring him upstairs. I did so and left him at the door of the room, as I felt he would like to be quite alone with her. But he took my arm and led me in, saying huskily, "'You loved her too, old fellow,' she told me all about it, and there was no friend had a closer place in her heart than you. I don't know how to thank you for all you have done for her. I can't think yet.' Here he suddenly broke down and threw his arms round my shoulders and laid his head on my breast, crying, "'Oh, Jack, Jack, what shall I do?' The whole of life seems gone for me all at once, and there is nothing in the wide world for me to live for. I comforted him as well as I could. In such cases, men do not need much expression. A grip of the hand, the tightening of an arm over the shoulder, a sob in unison, are expressions of sympathy dear to a man's heart. I stood still and silent till his sobs died away, and then I said softly to him, Come and look at her. Together we moved over to the bed, and I lifted the lawn from her face. God, how beautiful she was. Every hour seemed to be enhancing her loveliness. It frightened and amazed me somewhat, and as for Arthur, he fell a-trembling, and finally was shaken with doubt as with an egg. At last, after a long pause, he said to me in a faint whisper, Jack, is she really dead? I assured him sadly that it was so, and went on to suggest for I felt that such a horrible doubt should not have life for a moment longer than I could help, that it often happened that after death faces became softened and even resolved into their youthful beauty, that this was especially so when death had been preceded by any acute or prolonged suffering. It seemed to quite do away with any doubt, and after kneeling beside the couch for a while and looking at her lovingly and long, he turned aside. I told him that must be goodbye, as the coffin had to be prepared. So he went back and took her dead hand in his and kissed it, and bent over and kissed her forehead. He came away, fondly looking back over his shoulder at her as he came. I left him in the drawing room and told Van Helsing that he had said goodbye, so the latter went to the kitchen to tell the undertaker's men to proceed with the preparations and to screw up the coffin. When he came out of the room again, I told him of Arthur's questions, and he replied, "'I'm not surprised.' Just now I doubted for a moment myself. We all dined together, and I could see that poor Art was trying to make the best of things. Van Helsing had been silent all dinner time, but when we had lit our cigars, he said, Lord, but Arthur interrupted him. No, no, not that. For God's sake, not yet at any rate. Forgive me, sir, I did not mean to speak offensively. It is only because my loss is so recent. The professor answered very sweetly, I only used that name because I was in doubt. I must not call you Mr., and I have grown to love you. Yes, my dear boy, to love you as Arthur.
Arthur held out his hand and took the old man's warmly. Call me what you will, he said. I hope I may always have the title of a friend. And let me say that I am at a loss for words to thank you for your goodness to my poor dear. He paused a moment and went on. I know that she understood your goodness even better than I do. And if I was rude or in any way wanting at that time you acted so... You remember. The professor nodded. He must forgive me. He answered with a grave kindness. I know it was hard for you to quite trust me then, for to trust such violence needs to understand. And I take it that you do not, that you cannot trust me now, for you do not yet understand. And there may be more times when I shall want you to trust when you cannot, and may not, and must not yet understand. But the time will come when your trust shall be whole and complete in me, and when you shall understand as though the sunlight himself shone through. Then you shall bless me from first to last for your own sake, and for the sake of others, and for her dear sake to whom I swore to protect. And indeed, indeed, sir, said Arthur warmly, I shall in all ways trust you. I know and believe you have a very noble heart, and you are Jack's friend, and you were hers. You shall do what you like. The professor cleared his throat a couple of times as though about to speak, and finally said, May I ask you something now? Certainly. You know that Mrs. Westenra left you all her property. No, poor dear, I never thought of it. And as it is all yours, you have a right to deal with it as you will. I want you to give me permission to read all Miss Lucy's papers and letters. Believe me, it is no idle curiosity. I have a motive of which, be sure, she would have approved. I have them all here. I took them before we knew that all was yours, so that no strange hand might touch them, no strange eye look through words into her soul. I shall keep them if I may, even if you may not, even you may not see them yet, but I shall keep them safe. No word shall be lost, and in the good time I shall give them back to you. It's a hard thing I ask, but you will do it, will you not, for Lucy's sake? Arthur spoke out heartily like his old self. Dr. Van Helsing, you may do what you will. I feel that in saying this I am doing what my dear one would have approved. I shall not trouble you with questions till the time comes. The old professor stood up as and stood up as he said solemnly. And you are right. There will be pain for us all, but it will not be all pain, nor will this pain be the last. We and you too, you most of all, my dear boy, will have to pass through the bitter water before we reach the sweet. But we must be brave of heart and unselfish, and do our duty, and all will be well. I slept on a sofa in Arthur's room that night. Van Helsing did not go to bed at all. He went to and fro as if patrolling the house, and was never out of sight of the room where Lucy lay in her coffin, strewn with the wild garlic flowers, which sent, through the odor of lily and rose, a heavy, overpowering smell into the night. And thus ends this episode of Social Distancing Radio. Next time, we'll jump back into Dracula. I'm really looking forward to it. Really glad to be back in the swing of things. I just hope that we don't all have to get through the bitter water to get to the sweet. But then, I suppose that's life, isn't it? Sometimes, some days, some years. Talk to you later. Thanks for listening. 
This podcast is released under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. The theme music is Bucked Contemporary Boom by Kara Square, available under a Creative Commons Attribution License at ccmixter.org. <laughs>